This is episode 274 of Alohomora for June 22nd, 2019. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Lohamora, MuggleNet.com's in-depth exploration of the Harry Potter series. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Irvin Kateman. And I'm Allison Sigurd. And this week, we are joined by a very special guest, uh, Genevieve Mayer from our Alohomora social media team. And you might know her as Puff the Magic Raven on the main site. I did not know that was you. I love that name. It's really cute. Surprise! I love figuring <laughs> out that people I know have usernames that I didn't know. <laughs> I, I love like. the name and the comments. Your comments have been really on point. Oh my goodness. Yeah. First very special guest, now on point. I'm blushing. Stop. <laughs> but like, also, we've got to stop hiring all of our listeners as staff because we're not going to have any listeners anymore. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that is not a thing. Couldn't even oh. couldn't even if you tried. Genevieve, tell us a little bit about you and Harry Potter. So let our listeners know your house. Uh, I don't know, anything else? Wand, Patronus, how you got into it. I haven't introduced a guest in a long time, I feel like. This is weird. <laughs> all right, no problem. I will say all the things. So I like Tom Felton, got into Harry Potter by being in the first movie. No, I'm just kidding. That's a lie. So I got, um, I got into Twist. Harry Potter. Like, so I've, I've always been one of those super annoying contrarian kids that when something popular happens, I'm like, I'm not going to like that because everyone does. And my cousin, who's has been a bookworm forever and ever, she got into it age appropriate time, probably around eight or nine. And I was like, well, I obviously can't like that because if she likes it and everybody likes it, then I can't just by definition. But then my sister had a boyfriend who was like, let's not be dumb. You're a kid. You need this book. And he was right. <laughs> and my dad, I remember he he had read the first book first and he thought, you know, I'm like a nine year old kid. It might be kind of intense. He's like, how about I read it with you? And he reads the first chapter and I'm like, it's OK, dad. I can take it from here. And it was just off to the races from there. I have been, yeah, just um, up to my eyeballs in Harry Potter ever since. That said, though, I'm not super clear on what my wand would be. I took the quiz a while ago. I'll be honest. I don't have that information handy with me. I took the Patronus quiz. I think I was a salmon and then a gray squirrel. But <laughs> if, if if I had any say in the matter on what my Patronus would be, it would likely be something between a corgi or an elephant. <laughs> so oh. if, if you could oh. put them together, that there it is. That's the creature for me. A, cor a corgifant. Yeah. I'm just picturing like a little corgi with a, a trunk. Oh my oh. gosh. I want one. That's uh -huh. pretty like, adorable. Crying. <laughs> this is totally like off topic, but have any of you read the book The Bells? Michael, have no. you heard of this book, Being a Librarian? Yeah, that title sounds awfully familiar it's a fascinating book uh it's a, it's like a fantasy oh i can't even remember the author's name i read it because my best friend the uh lady who wrote it went to the same mfa program as my best friend anyway so she recommended it but in this world what i'm getting to is in this world they have like teacup size like animals like elephants and stuff and they keep them as pets and that's allison. what it made me think of allison <laughs> want want 
<laughs> like seriously wiping tears out of my eyes just thinking about it. <laughs> um, but Genevieve, yeah. what, what's your Hogwarts house? I, it occurred to me that I, I bulldoze right past that. Um, I know we don't necessarily <laughs> love doing uh, split houses on this show. Like, it's I'm okay. A, I'm yes, we do. Fine. We absolutely do. Oh, wonderful. Okay, so I'm a Ravenpuff. It's like a 60-40 split. Me too! Me yes. too! High five! Doing it. That was the high five sound. We did yeah. I don't know, y'all. The, the sorting hat just doesn't work that way. I know. So if I, I'm, <laughs> I'm helping out the hat, I'm putting myself in Ravenclaw. It's fine. You don't know how I got the, the password to one of the other common rooms and just bounce in between them? <laughs> <laughs> All you have to do I, is tickle the pair. It's not hard. I just, I just feel when you do have a split house decision, then you do get that choice. Like you are the lucky one who gets to be like, I'm going to basically choose my favorite because I want what I want want and the, the hat doesn't know what to do so i get to choose <laughs> so that's lucky you indeed thank you thank you for validating my decisions i need that <laughs> <laughs> so this episode we are doing one of our chapter revisits and the chapter we are revisiting is prisoner of azkaban chapter 18 mooney wormtail padfoot and prongs so, uh, you should obviously read the chapter before listening to this episode, and if you want extra credit, if you're just that Hermione type, you should listen to the original discussion uh, about this chapter on Alohomora. That would be episode 29 with Noah, Kat, Rosie, and Laura from May 2013. It has been six years, so we have been due wow. to revisit this. Oof. That's a long time. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Before we get started on talking about this excellent chapter, though, I'm really excited for it. Uh, we want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Ali Frega, and it is her third time sponsoring um, on Patreon. And remember, you can become a sponsor for as little as a dollar a month. And if you're not a sponsor yet, honestly, get on there right now, because our fabulous editor, Patrick, put together basically a whole bonus episode. It's like two hours long. Um, where he goes through kind of the history of the show and what it looks like behind the scenes. There's a whole big compilation of some of our best bloopers. That was hilarious. I was cracking up as I was driving today uh, listening to it. So you really want to listen to that. And that's going to be uh, on our Patreon right now. So go to patreon.com slash Alohomora to find out more. Yay for Allie! Yay, Yay Allie! Three times. That's very impressive. Thank you so much, Allie, for keeping the show go helping to keep the show going third or nothing <laughs> third time sponsoring third book that we're looking at today there Ooh. we go spooky professor trelawney would say that's not a coincidence of course not it's fine she's not in this chapter um and also <laughs> before we go on we wanted to talk to you all a little bit about our other episode sponsor away luggage if you listeners have not heard of Away Luggage before, uh, they have really uh, great uh, suitcases. I've, I've actually used Away Luggage um, for myself and my parents for the last time we went to Universal Studios uh, for my birthday in March because my, my parents haven't tra hadn't traveled by plane for a really long time. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you guys, things have changed so much and you need good luggage for the for the airport because they 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 still had like, you know, the old suitcases that have just like the two wheels on the back and you always have to tip them. And it's like, you can't get through an airport with those anymore. So I, and I'm, my roommate, Jara had bought away luggage first and I really like loved the look of them there. The neat thing about away luggage is that they actually have different, mul like multiple different sizes, the carry on, the bigger carry on, the medium 
or the large. So you can get different types. And they come in like all these really pretty colors. My dad saw the blue and really wanted that one. And then he was considering giving another one. Once he used the second one, um, he was going to give it to my brother, Charlie. Um, and Charlie loves red and they had a beautiful red color that he got. So, uh, yeah, we got some really nice luggage with that. And they even have, um, like the, some, some of the away luggage has that, uh, you just tap it and you've got a portable charger that you can remove out of there with his, which is really nice. Uh, so that was really also very useful because my phone kept dying at Universal Studios because <laughs> their app sucked the battery out of my phone. So because I had that little portable charger for my phone from the suitcase, I was able to keep my phone alive, uh, which was especially important because my parents had never been to Universal Studios and I had to guide them all, all around the park. Uh, so there's a lot of really great uses that come from such great suitcases and you listeners have a chance to get $20 off a suitcase by visiting awaytravel.com slash Albus and use promo code Albus during checkout. That's awaytravel.com slash Albus, A-L-B-U-S. And use promo code Albus, A-L-B-U-S, during checkout. Okay, and now it's time for our shout-out maxima. Uh, we are giving shout-outs to episode 272, which was the last of the anniversary special, uh, discussing Deathly Hell's chapter one. So our first shout-out maxima goes to Diskid for furthering the discussion about how all wands are unique, uh, you know, because trees and woods are all unique, and it was really, really good. Our second shout-out maxima goes to Griffin Prefect for the very cool suggestion that Charity Burbage was the one who inspired Hermione's crusade for house elves by emphasizing wizards' need for compassion for their, you know, fellow beings. Very cool connection. And our third shout-out maxima goes to Davy B. Jones 999 for tying in the discussion of movie music to the music that opens and closes the audiobooks. And, of course, shout-out Maxima to all the amazing commenters on the Alohomora forums. I love chatting Harry Potter with you guys. Keep it up. Well done, y'all. That was that was really fun, revisiting the first... It was kind of weird, actually, prepping this episode and, like, going into yeah. a, into an end, like, a near-the-end chapter, because I was like, oh, wait, this is really... This is, this is a lot different, going into a... Especially this one, because it starts, like right in the middle of something yeah and it was like wait hold on what what's going on (laughs) yeah i was gonna say that that like in my mind the prisoner of azkaban climax is just such like a cohesive whole it was very weird like just taking out a chunk of it which is this chapter and like talking about it in isolation real weird yeah it was very backwards from what we've been doing from from those anniversary episodes. So thank you, listeners, for uh, sticking with us through those through that special anniversary series that we did, and we loved all of your comments. And we're looking forward to the new ones that we get as we journey on into Prisoner of Azkaban. Three turns should do it. Chapter revisit. Prisoner of Azkaban. Chapter eighteen. Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs. Following the shocking and seemingly outlandish pronouncement that Scabbers the Rat is supposedly Peter Pettigrew, Harry, Ron, and Hermione interrogate Professor Lupin, who shares the story of how he, along with Peter, Sirius, and James Potter, became Animagi, bonding over Lupin's lycanthropy and creating the Marauder's Map. But as the trio finds out, a prank on Snape by Sirius and the subsequent rescue attempt by James nearly ruined everything for the group. 
and Snape appears in the Shrieking Shack to confirm that he is indeed still holding his schoolboy grudge. So, before we even get into the real meat of this chapter, Irvin, you had a great uh, obligatory genius moment that I feel like has to be just said right off the bat because it's it's kind of one of the favorite ones from the Potter fandom about this particular book. It really is. It's so cool. So the title, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, lists the Marauders in the reverse order of how they died. Because oh. Prongs is the first to go, then Padfoot, then Wormtail, and then Mooney. Uh, which really was pretty epic foreshadowing for Deathly Hallows if we had just known we could rely on that. Well, I think it's interesting because I feel like that's how they're usually presented. They're usually presented in that order. Yeah. Because I think it, like, falls off the tongue easily. Mm-hmm. That's how they officially present themselves on the map. Yeah. Yeah. Why did they write them in that way? Why did they write them in that way? Yeah, um, like, why did they decide on that order? It's not alphabetical. It's not. Is it age? Is it? I don't know. I mean, I think they decided for the out of universe reason that Joe Rowling wanted to leave the snugget. <laughs> like, if we're being totally honest. I know, like, some people have supposed that there's a level of, like, uh, kind of a, a level of hierarchy of who helped with the map. Huh. But I don't know if that's necessarily true because it's, as Lupin will claim in this chapter, uh, Sirius and James are the smarties of the group, and they kind of toyed with the magic more than he and Peter did. Yeah, but Lupin is perennially underselling himself. Like, it wouldn't surprise oh, me, yeah. given True. his his abilities, that he probably... I could have easily seen him doing the lion's share of the work on it, but not taking enough of the credit, like, easily. How did Peter end up a second on the list, then? Oh, <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> he wormed his way into oh. that position. Oh, my oh. gosh. <laughs> Maybe she just tried a bunch of combinations, and that's the one that stuck the best. It just had the best, like, sound oh, yeah. when read as a Can't list. Can't you just know. picture the Marauders sitting down and, like, writing out every permutation of their names to see which one sounds better? <laughs> that's funny. I can see that. I wonder, though, I'm like, is it, like, the order that they transformed in? You know, like, mm. did they, like... Because obviously Lupin was first. I wonder then, was maybe Peter the first one to actually take his animal's form, you know? That is also seemingly not the case. Um, no, because um, Lupin says, uh, either in this chapter or one of the surrounding ones, it's that Peter one. needed a lot of help from James and Sirius to actually no, become no, no, an no. animagus. I, I know that, but I wonder if when like the time came, because I, I brought this up later, but the, the process for this is really complicated. Yes, it <laughs> so is. So I wonder almost if, um, and this is going to sound really mean, if they used Peter as kind of a guinea pig in some ways. Oh, you know, that's like messed if up. They, they were like, here, we'll help Peter get through his first and then we'll go on to ours. You know, it's kind of that like, almost like when you're on an airplane and they're like, when you use the oxygen mask, like, I guess they say that <laughs> first. Never mind, that's not no, what I wanted to no, say. No, but they're Gryffindors. Like, come on, they don't like fight for the honor of being the first one to risk their lives. No. But I wonder if true. maybe if they did it all together because James and Sirius's forms were so big, maybe it took longer for them to transform, you know? So maybe they were like, it was quick succession, but like, Peter became a rat first, and then Sirius became a dog, and then James became a, a stag, you know? Maybe. I don't know. I just I just want to know reasons that are random. Yeah. Well, and if we go back to the popular fan uh, theory about the uh, the death order, the, the thing about that that's, you know, worth noting is 
Rowling by this point was not planning to kill Lupin. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He was supposed to survive the series. So, uh, you know, this is one of those interesting ones where it's almost kind of like it, it fit really well after the fact. It's almost like, like Ron's predictions that end up actually coming true. Like, yeah. It like it's an out. It's like a it's a real world version of that where it's like oh like that actually happened. Well, but Mooney Mooney would still have been the last to die, just True. not in the timeline ha. of the books. <laughs> oh yeah. But like I suppose I'm saying insignificance to the actual writing of the story. Like, yeah, yeah. The idea that we should have known that they were all going to die in this order and that it would be significant to the plot. Um, is, well, I is, I just think it was a hint because a popular theory back in the day was that Wormtail would kill Lupin because Silver kills mm-hmm. werewolves and he had the silver hand. Um, yep. So this could have been very good evidence to the contrary if we'd known to look for it. That's true. That's a great, yeah, that's a great way to contradict uh, that Except for Rowling has revealed that in the, her world, Silver doesn't kill werewolves. Yes, it's irrelevant. Touché. That as she, as she, yes, she, somebody asked her about, about the whole thing with Peter killing Lupin and she was just like no that's not how that works um so because she's always breaking the rules um but since we've been speaking about Lupin a lot let's actually start uh exploring Lupin and some of the some of the plot elements that surround him because really this chapter is almost completely about him and even though it's called Mooney Wormtail Padfoot and Prongs this is really mainly Mooney and kind of how his affliction really Michael, you want to talk about Lupin? Are you sure? <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> we could skip that, can't we? <laughs> yeah, not important. Irrelevant. You're right. You have a point. We've done a, we've we've had, we have a whole episode on Lupin. Let's just <laughs> let's pass. Let's just move on. Um, but uh yes, there's going to be a lot of Lupin love in this in this show, listeners. Strap in. <laughs> so, and Lupin, Lupin, those of you who are not Lupin fans, you should still stick around because, like, I think there's some interesting and very worthwhile conversation that's going to come out of this about Lupin. Um, we're not going to be one-sided about it, but we're actually going to start a little bit with a point that Allison has here about the Shrieking Shack, the place where Lupin was being held as a werewolf. Yeah, this... This always confuses me. The the timeline of this whole story. Not this whole story, but big chunks of this story. Um, so Lupin says that the shack and the weeping willow were put in place for his use. So my question was, okay, did no one in the village remember when it was being built? Surely there are people there that have been there for a long time. I mean, Madame Rosemerta, we know, has been there since uh, the Marauders were at school, at least. You know, so does no one remember? Because And then Dumbledore starts spreading this rumor about ghosts. So how would a story like that even work? Were they like, oh, yeah, we built this house. So like all these ghosts would have a place to go. This is the <laughs> wizarding equivalent of the Haunted Mansion. Like, I don't know. Um, I went and did some more research. And uh, that, that piece about Remus on Pottermore talks about how Dumbledore seems to just, or it kind of it gives the, the idea that Dumbledore knew about Remus's bite for quite a while. So I wonder if maybe as soon as he found out about this, he started making arrangements knowing he wanted to be able to let Remus come to school. Or did this all get set up when Remus was 11 and he was going to school? You know, and I'm just like, 
how were all of these wizards in Hogsmeade just like, oh, yeah, violent ghosts live there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, I'm going to try to answer some of those questions. Uh, So regarding uh, no one remembering it being built, um, magic, uh, like they didn't have construction and scaffolding going on for, you know, five years the way we do. Um, I think like, you know, just one night there was a haunted shack and they're like, was that there yesterday? Uh, And wizards are shown to be a very superstitious lot in general. Like, they'll sort of believe anything you tell them. You know, they're superstitious about wand woods. Um, People believe there are werewolf cubs living in the forest because there's a rumor that there are and so on and so forth. So I can see why, like, rumors would work because it's one of those the emperor has no clothes things where you're like, oh, my God, I heard that shack is so haunted. And did you hear the wailing last night? And you'll be like, yeah, I guess it is really haunted. And then within a week, all of Hogsmeade thinks it's haunted. I think it also we sort of get in book four how we see the riddle house, right? It's it's deserted for a long time. And so all these rumors about the ownership just kind of pop out. So yeah, it might have just appeared. And when nobody stepped up immediately, and was like, Hi, I'm your new neighbor. It was just like, Oh, this exists now. We acknowledge that it exists. And then rumors, maybe possibly prodded along also by Aberforth in the Hogshead could have easily, you know, started to percolate that way out. And the other thing, um, and I'll agree with you that this is a bit goofy, is the British wizarding community seems to, like, have amnesia about lots of important things, (laughs) like, sort of frequently throughout the series. Like, all these important events in the series are presented as, like, you know, these mythic events that no one's quite sure about. And I'm like, it happened 40 years ago. Like, wizards live a long time. Like, There are people who should know about Tom Riddle being at school. There are people who should know about Dumbledore's family issues and all that. And yet it's all presented as like happening, you know, as if in the Middle Ages and no one quite knows what happened, even though like they were all alive for it. So, yeah, I just think wizard memories aren't all that great. Isn't this similar to the issue that comes up in another fandom Thanks to the pre- the Star Wars prequels, when you get that line from Han Solo where he's like, Jedis, Jedis are stupid. They don't exist. That's a myth. And everybody's like, you were alive when the Jedi existed. <laughs> like, that's not- <laughs> uh, Was he, though? He almost definitely was. He was we a child. We don't believe Solo. <laughs> that doesn't exist. Sorry, it's that's a whole different story with me. Hilarious. But, well, okay, the other, like an in-universe example that I can think of, at least that's a- added on by extra canonical material, is Rowling's, uh, probably the closest one to what Irvin was talking about, is uh, Rowling mentions in one of the pieces about what happened with the Hogwarts Express and that, like, overnight... The, the village of Hogsmeade had a train station and a train and the villagers were like, okay. But, and like that, there was just <laughs> no additional questions about it. They just but I feel like let that's it go. Like easier to explain to be like, oh yeah, we'd have this for a purpose instead of like, there's some creepy house on the hill now and it's apparently haunted. Like what? And how does that even work? Like how would a house that no one knows like that no one's lived in become haunted you know like how would anyone be like 
So what happened? They just moved in. Like what are what are how how are we talking about this happening here? You know, I don't I don't know. I mean, do you pay attention to every house that springs up in your town? Because like <laughs> there's stuff going up all around me in New York, and I like I couldn't tell you why and you know what what it's doing there. I'm just like, oh, there's a new skyscraper there. All right, well I gotta go to work. I mean. To be fair, Hogsmeade isn't New York City, so... Yeah, it's, it's such a small, like, insular kind of village that I feel like everyone knows what goes on everywhere, pretty much. And Well, and the Shrinking Shack is supposed to be a little bit of a walk away from the main village. Like, it's not, like... That's true. ...sitting right next to the other houses. It's it's a little bit of a ways up. Um, but, yeah, no, I... I, I the, the, the confirmation that we kind of get from the Pottermore piece on Lupin is that the house was definitely built before Lupin showed up um, because Dumbledore has already presented the full plan to the Lupins um, before just before Lupin's um, 11th birthday. So he hasn't even received his Hogwarts invitation yet um, by the time the house has been built. And okay. I know there was some kind of suspecting on our part that maybe Dumbledore, because Dumbledore does reveal, it's revealed in the Pottermore piece about Lupin that Dumbledore knows what happened to, to Remus um, with Greyback. So maybe this was planned in well in advance. Oh, Pottermore. That's the only thing I could think of, you know, that like <laughs> Dumbledore like started getting this stuff ready. Like, I don't know, as soon as he found out what had happened to uh, to Remus. Honestly, the more like bizarre one to me is the tree. Like the Whomping Will. I'm, did they put an Engorgio charm on the willow? Like you can't <laughs> well, just plant. You a, can, like, you do can they plant grow a, really fast? You can plant a fully mature tree. Yeah. Like, so I just imagine that. Because, yeah, does I was one thinking move too, a Whomping Willow. <laughs> Yeah. Do you well, think that's one of the things it. they need to talk to the Muggle Prime Minister about? Like, it's nah. just see the British Minister being like, so we're importing this really dangerous, violent tree, but, like, nothing for you to worry <laughs> about. It's fine. I bet Madame Pomfrey had been, like, growing it for a while or something. Or, like, some herbologist somewhere close by had been growing it. And they were like, hey, can we, like, get your tree? And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. It's dangerous. Like, <laughs> put it on the grounds of the school. Cool. Whatever. It's Dumbledore's administration. The more dangerous Hogwarts is, the more it makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a perfect experiment, you know? See how many children this thing can hurt. <laughs> I'm just really children. impressed with the idea of even moving the willow because it just doesn't seem like something that you would want to transport. Like, I'm, I'm like, if it gets aggravated, just by things basically coming near it the the idea of like uprooting it and moving it seems terrible like, but there's a spell for that mobile arbus <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's in prisoner of azkaban i wonder if uh somehow if it's like uprooted it almost goes dormant Ooh. you know like oh. it doesn't have like nutrients <laughs> it's like okay nap time i don't know hibernation i don't, I don't know Trees no you don't know care. what they did it's they probably just got one of the junior staff members to keep their finger on the knot the entire time oh, while they just, like, in the back of the truck or whatever as they were moving it and they're like okay don't move you'll die <laughs> they used a dragon oh even well, better now in addition to all the questions we have about the the setup um and listeners we look forward to you weighing in on the main site about what you think happened with the Shrinking Shack and the Willow. Uh, it looks like we, Allison, we've, uh, Allison also has a few questions 
about <laughs> werewolves in general. I have a lot of questions. Always. <laughs> um, <laughs> so just there are a lot of things that just come up in this story that I'm like, why? You know, um, one of them is why is a werewolf only a danger to humans? Like, wouldn't this massive wolf want to eat like a rat or a deer? You know, like, I feel like that's a thing. Um, and the Pottermore piece about Remus says that by the time he was 10, he was smashing doors and windows. So how is he not a danger to these animals? Like, I feel like a werewolf is, I, I mean, like, I know, like, everybody's seen the, like, puppies and ducks being best friends. I don't know. But, like, <laughs> I feel like a werewolf is something much more, I don't, I don't even know, you know? Like, there's just a lot, and I'm just not satisfied with any of the answers that are out there right now. Well, I don't think that a werewolf is motivated by hunger. I think it's like a virus and that its main motivation is to bite and infect as many people as possible. So I don't think it looks at a deer and sees a viable host, right? And it's not going to think, oh, I'm, okay. I'm feeling pretty hungry right now because if the transformations are only happening at night, I mean, presumably the person has eaten dinner or whatever. And so they're not like hungry, but they're looking for other hosts to put the put the lycanthropy in. <laughs> Yeah, and I'll agree with that. I think, uh, because, you know, magical wolf, not regular wolf, I think just werewolves only want to bite humans. There are several magical creatures that do only eat humans. Um, I think that's part of their whole shtick. Um, it could even be one of the five signs identifying a werewolf, you know, that is on the Marauder's defense owl. You know, one of the signs is you show the wolf a very tasty looking animal carcass, and if he's chows down it is not a werewolf <laughs> okay i really wish i really wish we could have gotten the answers to those wombat questions when they asked i us know <laughs> yeah. sadly well okay i'm i'm looking back at the the pottermore piece on werewolves mm -hmm. and it says uh learned from the werewolves that muggles taste different to wizards and that they are much more likely to die of their wounds, whereas witches and wizards survive to become werewolves. So maybe it's something similar to that. They're like not appetizing to a werewolf. Like they're not like normal wolves where they're like deer dinner. Yes. Yeah. Um, no, I I think it's, I, I think Genevieve was on kind of the right track with they, the, they're, kind of made to spread the virus so that is okay. kind of the main existence purpose of a werewolf so so they're like zombies ah yeah mm -hmm. well i mean because people people also raise the question especially because of uh, the scene in the movie where lupin and sirius fight people were like well it wouldn't sirius be would sirius be a, <laughs> a werewolf because lupin bit him as a werewolf and he was a dog like if a werewolf bites an animages, can they become a werewolf? Some layers, layers upon layers <laughs> yeah. of transformation questions there. Um, of course that from what we can tell in the book, that doesn't, they, they don't have an altercation to the point where they, one of them is bitten. Um, so, but yeah, that question was raised from the film. Yeah. I mean, according to the Pottermore piece, when the werewolf saliva mingles with the victim's blood, contamination will occur. I assume I assume if that happens in Animagus form, that could prove like especially dangerous. 
Ooh, um, like a like a werewolf dog hybrid thing. Oh my gosh! <laughs> uh, but we know that I'm like doubting myself on how to say this word right now. I'm so sorry, animagi, um, animagi, animagi. Well, yeah, I, I feel like I go back and forth. Um, yeah, we'll we'll just I say them all. That thing. I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think in the piece on that, too, I went through all of these pieces because I was trying to, like, find answers to things to, like, <laughs> bulk up this story that Lupin tells. Because I feel like Lupin just gives us, like, the bare bones version of it. And then J.K. Rowling was like, here's everything else that actually happened. And it says that they, like, re- they retain most of their human qualities, but also take on, like, physical traits of the animal. So, for example, they'll eat the food that that animal would normally eat mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. why would so, they need to i wonder if that Which, happens ew. too and so it's not like they don't have like human blood anymore and so it's not going to mix the same way and create a werewolf but if the saliva is still there when they transform back then i think it would still contaminate so how That's long true. does it take to get werewolf saliva out of your bloodstream <laughs> <laughs> so if um just Something that Pottermore had said about Animagi is that you don't get to choose the form that your um that your animal form. You don't get to choose what it is. So if you go through this whole process and you find out that your form is a dung beetle, are you just like completely hosed where you're just like hungry for poop all the time? Oh gosh. No, I think it's <laughs> yeah. just when you're the animal. Just when you're in the animal form. I mean, but still, I would never want to transform. If that were like my slap in the yeah, face, that's true. every time I transform, <laughs> whatever adventures I want to go on are gonna take a backseat to my poop hunger. Oh, yeah, what? <laughs> like, we eat first before this happens. And Always we eat. are only there for a small amount of time. <laughs> Always eat before So you we transform. do not get hungry again. <laughs> well, to. okay, since we're talking about all these layers upon layers of issues. Issues with werewolves and animagi. Uh, uh, we should jump to Irvin's question here about, yeah. about so okay uh, that one thing that has bugged me since I read this book at nine years old and I still don't have an answer. Why <laughs> didn't Lupin become an animagus too? Like, cause, so the other three marauders become anime guy to support him. Great, good. But now you have a group of four friends, three of whom can transform into animals at will and go on crazy fun adventures any day of the month, and another one who can't. And, like, just why, like, it must have really sucked to be the only one in the group who can't turn into an animal. I think I have the answer to this because I think it has to do with the process of becoming an animagi. Yeah. Because the the first thing you have to do, yeah, the first thing is a single leaf from a mandrake plant is kept in the mouth for one month from full moon to full moon. Uh, If at any point the leaf is swallowed or removed from the mouth, the process must be started again. So he can't because I don't think. His werewolf self would, unless, I mean, maybe he was taking Wolfsbane potion, which didn't exist then, but maybe at some point he could have if he was taking Wolfsbane and could keep his uh, human mind and remember to keep the leaf there. Oh my god, it's but, it's been 18 years and I have an answer. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that, that, You're that, welcome. The, unusually, that Animagus piece, in which is not sadly freely available on Pottermore it's it one is of on the, the lexicon oh and well because it came from the the little uh mini books that were that Pottermore released that did have writing by Rowling the one that it's in is called heroism hardship and dangerous hobbies oh um, yeah and so that's 
that's where that's hiding in case listeners you're like why can't i find the source for this um but i I, i'd say too like in addition to that especially knowing that that that's a big piece of the process uh, that that you do have to do this process with, and that the full moon is involved. I can't imagine Lupin would also want to take any additional, even if he could do it, if he had Wolfsbane potion and would be conscious enough to keep the leaf under his tongue for the month. Um, uh, it, I, it actually uh, it wouldn't work because step two, and I'm looking at a ill-gotten version of this, uh, mm-hmm. is remove the leaf at the full moon and place it steeped in your saliva in a small crystal file that receives the pure rays of the moon. Um, mm-hmm. And then add one of your own hairs and dew and a whole bunch of nonsense. Uh, but yeah, so unless he was a wolf at the full moon and had the presence of mind to, you know, get the crystal file and put the hair in it. And we don't even know if the werewolf hair would work. Um, yeah. OK, that that I, absolutely I just, would not work. Yeah, I think there's too many things. In, like on top of that, the fact that he is already a werewolf and probably goes through a lot of pain every month transforming yeah. into a werewolf. I don't think he'd really desire to transform into another animal um, like that this was, just doesn't really seem like it would be beneficial for Lupin. That was my thought, too. It's that even more than it being sort of a non-starter in terms of being physically feasible, I think emotionally he was feeling so self-conscious and it sounds like he almost looks at it as like this is like a dirty thing about him that he doesn't really want to dwell on very much. And so why on top of the fact that he's he's supposed to be a prefect and he's supposed to be setting an example and kind of keeping his friends in line, I don't think he's going to go out of his way to spend even more time goofing off and then focusing on this part of himself that he kind of wants to keep buried anyway. So I just, I don't see him jumping on and being like, we're going to spend even more time on this. Like, I think he'd want to kind of get away from it. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I just have massive FOMO if all my friends were anime guy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and even sadder than that is if if we're going by the additional information, which is provided by that piece from Pottermore, uh, because your Patronus reflects your Animagus, you tend to be the same thing. The, the Patronus can eventually evolve and change depending on life experiences. Your Animagus will not. Um, but if that's the case, his, his Animagus may just end up being a wolf. So, uh, well, I, to quote from the piece, yeah. um, there's no known instance of the Animagus form changing to match the Patronus if the latter changes, but the Animagus who can also produce a Patronus is highly unusual, and no study has ever been done on sufficient numbers to draw firm conclusions. So we don't know if there's actually 100% correlation between Animagus form and Patronus. Wait, did it say that people who are Animagi have difficulty producing a Patronus? No, no, no. 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 It's saying oh, that... Okay. There aren't sufficient numbers of anime guy who can also produce Patronuses to, like, you know, do a proper sample, because there's only seven registered ones in the whole century in Britain. I was just sitting there going, how do those things correlate? Like, why? Why would that make you, like... The important thing to remember from that too, which is, you know, a skewered impression that we, we, we get a little bit from Harry's perspective is that, uh, one, there are very, there are not that many people who can do a Patronus. A Patronus is considered advanced magic in this world and it doesn't seem to really be a core piece of the curriculum either. Um, and according to Rowling, basically none of the Death Eaters can do it. Uh, it's only the people on the 
quote unquote good side. And they mainly, and they have an additional feature of using it for messaging, which Dumbledore came up with. But, uh, in addition to that, it, like if, if Patronus, if Patronus casters are rare and Imagi are super rare, according to this piece. Um, so you've got two really advanced rare forms of magic. And so kind of the Marauders, in a lot of ways, they're, they're a pretty big exception. Overachievers. Who the heck was Well, that? actually, we don't know if any of the Marauders except Lupin can cast the Patronus. Hmm. Oh, you're right. The, it's implied that James probably could since he was a member of the Order. Um, well, implied, but never stated. Never confirmed. Well, and I think, too, Sirius as well, since he's a member of the Order with the, uh, with the messaging system, you know? Yeah, um, probably not confirmed, but probably. Yeah. And then, of course, maybe, you know, there's Sirius has good reason for not being able to cast a Patronus. Sure. In the, in, yeah. In the timeline. Well, <laughs> yes. Uh, but let's uh, jump back a little bit to since, since we're talking about the Marauders a little bit. Let's bring in another character who was involved with them, Snape, because, Allison, you had a question about that. I had another question. Uh, <laughs> so... Lupin says that James, Sirius, and Peter figured out in their, it would be their second year that Remus was a werewolf. But Snape, he says later, was always curious where he was going at the full moon. And I was like, wait, 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 hold on. How did Snape not figure it out? And like, you know, like, I, I know he probably wasn't in as close proximity, but I feel like Snape's pretty smart and is vindictive enough that he would have figured that out. I mean, Hermione didn't even know that anything was happening, and she was just like, here's what werewolves do. Oh, wait, this matches up to Lupin. You know, like, I, I don't know. I just feel like Snape at least should have had suspicions. He did have suspicions. Um, but, well, first of all, Hermione has some pieces of information that Snape doesn't, uh, most notably uh, the shape of Lupin's bogart. That's true. I forgot about that. Yeah. And just, if you don't live with a guy, you know, a guy is missing in class once a month. Like, you know, I don't keep track of my classmates' attendance. Um, you know, maybe sick mother, maybe whatever. I feel like it's very different when, like, you know, you live with a guy and then you know exactly what's going on. It's pretty difficult to miss it, too. And one of your professors hands you a piece of homework, says, read this chapter on very detailed signs of, of what a werewolf <laughs> looks like. I don't I don't know that Snape had anybody assigning him that particular homework. But I, I can't help thinking, too, that Snape was pretty distracted during that time, that he was so busy, like, acutely hating James and, like, trying mm-hmm. so hard at school to be better than James and to be better than these guys. And all the while, he's trying to, like you know, get Lily to fall for him and, like, keep her attention and be her friend, but she's in a different house and what's going on with her. His attention was kind of split. So I think he was really curious, but he had a lot going on. He was only a teenager, could kind of only do so much, I guess. I don't know. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a fair answer. I think that's another thing that, you know, we get a kind of skewered impression of not only from the small anecdotes we get about the Marauders' time at school, but also from the millions and millions of Marauders-era fan fiction that are out there that kind of, I think, have in in fandom mind solidified what those what, what this group of people were up to versus maybe what Rowling's actual vision was for how involved they were with each other at school. Um, because really... 
If you if you've read enough Marauders fanfic, you might think that Lily was hanging out with them every day. Yeah, she, she which wasn't. She was not. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. It's and just, you might you know. think that you know there's a special dorm for the head boy and head girl, which there isn't. No. Wait, say what now? Oh, is that a thing people have the, written? The, Who like, this? the most common, the single most common <laughs> fanfic trope I've ever seen is that there is a special dorm where just the head boy and girl live, and. What? You know, shenanigans okay, and sexy times always ensue. I mean, of course. <laughs> that's really weird. Okay. <laughs> and I'm like, did y'all, did none of y'all read Prisoner of Azkaban where Percy Weasley is very much in Gryffindor Tower? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. Don't um, need to stick them in their own dorm. We've got the room of requirement. They can go play in there. Oh well, you gosh. do when it's Draco and Hermione, and, you know, they wouldn't hang out <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right, we're going down a, a rabbit hole that we should not go. Down. <laughs> well, now since we're still since we're on the Marauders and talking about them, uh, Allison, yes. you had you had a really interesting thought. Here. Yeah, um, I've never thought of this before, but I was rereading this chapter mm-hmm. and rereading the the Pottermore information. And Rowling mentions on Pottermore that Lupin is the one who kind of brings Peter into the group, where James and Sirius wouldn't have really paid attention to Peter had Lupin not reached out to him first. So my con, my, my, my semi controversial, uh, question is, is Lupin somehow then even a little bit to blame for Pettigrew's betrayal because he brought Peter into the group? So does he, it not even necessarily even blame, but could we attribute that to a role in their death, at least? Well, Lupin certainly seems to think so. I mean, I don't, this isn't like a concrete one-to-one, or maybe this is like a super duh thing that I just missed out on. But he makes a statement in the chapter where he says, none of this could have happened if I hadn't been bitten. Which none of this is like, it's a big nebulous phrase. I don't know whether he's referring specifically to Peter having the knowledge to be an animagus and then bad things happen because of it. Or if he means in the larger abstract way, the death of the Potters couldn't have happened if he hadn't been bitten. And I, the reason I think that is because for one thing, the construction of the sentence is interesting, right? Obviously being bitten by a werewolf is something that happened to him, but he switches it around and says it in the passive voice where he says, if I hadn't been bitten, he makes himself the active participant in that sentence rather than saying a werewolf bit me and I was the victim. It's I was the one that got in the way of the werewolf. And I basically, he, it almost sounds like in a way he blames himself for being attacked. And so he does. Like, yeah, yep. it's right. So it, which is ridiculous. He was five and the, the guy who yeah. went after him was a psycho, but he, so he blames <laughs> himself already uh, for being attacked. And then, for all of the ripples that came out of that of it was my fault that, you know, my friends found out and then they did all this stuff and that they made these choices. Basically, that he's he's saying they wouldn't have made these choices if either he didn't exist or if he didn't hadn't been attacked in the first place. So whether or not he's to blame, like he certainly accepts all the blame for what Peter did yep. and for the Potters dying. Remus needs some serious therapy, guys. Everyone like, needs some serious therapy in this book. Legit, but like everybody in Harry Potter needs yeah. therapy. <laughs> okay, but like <laughs> Remus is like subject A. Like, get him to a therapist right now. <laughs> I mean, okay. Uh, so the New York City Harry Potter meetup had a discussion about mental health in Harry Potter, and our icebreaker question is, what is the one character in Harry Potter who would most 
benefit from going to a therapist? And actually, the best answer that we heard the whole night was Moropi Gaunt. Aww. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you want to talk ripples? Yeah. Love. Okay. Yep. For sure. Um, I was just, when you were talking about that, uh, it reminded me too that in Half-Blood Prince, when he's talking to Harry... And he's telling him about Greyback. We're learning about Greyback for the first time. And he reveals that it was Greyback who bit him. Mm-hmm. And he, he also says he felt sorry for him for a while. You know, like he after he'd experienced it a few times and he knew how painful it was, he was like, oh, I felt sorry for him. And I'm like, my dude, he broke into your bedroom window when you were five years old. Like, yeah, well, yeah, but, honey. But, well, but he didn't Lupin's, know that. Like, yeah, he says he felt bad before he found out it was Greyback who did it on purpose. Yeah, Lu- okay. Lupin is Lupin is like a super sympathetic, empathetic person. I think like that. It's it's like we we see a lot of evidence. But I for feel that. like I feel like that would be something that like he would have seen from his parents, like his parents panicking and freaking out and like the trauma of the fact that someone broke into their child's bedroom window and did this, you know, like, I feel like he would have understood that situation more. I think that's actually a lot, uh, to put on a five-year-old. I would probably guess that I would probably guess that a five-year-old wouldn't understand the, especially because we find out from the Pottermore piece that, the 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 act was politically motivated, right? Yeah, by, by Frenrir, um, because Lupin's dad did a naughty in, at the ministry and said things he should not have said. Um, so, and to be fair, Fenrir it was a bit of an exception to the to the rule as far as where it was go with being like actively um, a horrible, terrible person. Um, both in and out of werewolf form, but still probably shouldn't have phrased it the way he did. Um, yeah. We'll just explore that Pottermore piece more. Going back to the point that Lupin blames himself for this, I feel like just everyone in this book series blames themselves for the Potter's death. It's just sort of like <laughs> the thing. Like, every single one of the Marauders is to blame. And Snape. And Dumbledore. And, you know, the Order. And just everyone. Everyone is to blame for it. Ironically, though, Voldemort doesn't blame himself. He sees it as the Potter's fault because they wouldn't just give up Harry. <laughs> he says if they would have just moved out of the way, they didn't need to die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe, maybe it's all of our fault, guys. Maybe we all killed the Potters. No! Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. It's society. No, society no. killed the Potters. Society oh, killed gosh. the Potters. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you know, with, with the, the way that Lupin feels about Peter and like his involvement in that, it's, 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 like he probably is one of the most self-depreciating characters in the entire series. Um so yeah. I like it, it, what he's saying is is the kind of a chain that you could go back to like well like basically take it back to like well who was the first werewolf? It's their fault. Like <laughs> you know, it's 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 kind of and I think Rowling does a great job. You know, I I never really it never really hit me until reading this. And this is why I love reading the chapters standalone rather than why this is a fun experiment. I think, especially for those of us who have been in the Potter fandom for a long time and are familiar with these chapters. Um, like I was really connecting this chapter to, um, 
the chapter from Deathly Hallows, The Bribe, because Lupin calls himself a coward in this chapter. Mm, And a lot of people, including myself, were very shocked by Lupin's behavior in The Bribe. But the thing is, she set it up right here. Um, And she puts, and Lupin puts it on himself here um, by kind of devaluing himself and that his lack of value for himself leads him to do what he does in the bribe i mean we we don't have to get into it but i have thoughts about the bribe i feel like that was totally within lupin's character and uh people shouldn't be as hard on him as they are it is like i i don't don't think he was 100 wrong in the bribe i feel like he had a lot of good points Mm -hmm. yeah like hey expelliarmus maybe don't use that all the time yeah, I taught, I taught you other stuff. <laughs> so. Didn't you lead a secret society about fighting? Like, come on, Harry. <laughs> also, like the trio could have used an adult. Like, yes, really and very truly. much so. Very much could have used an adult. Who wants adults? They're gonna ruin everything. But that's for when we revisit the bribe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but. Let's let's go on to to something that's pretty pretty linked to loop and let's talk a little bit about the Marauders map because we're getting a little bit more of a reveal. This is the thing this is here right here is the section why people are so angry at the Prisoner of Azkaban movie because all of this section <laughs> yeah. is left out and it basically kind of muddles up the mystery of the movie if you don't have the answer to why the map is what the map is. But with this answer that Lupin provides, it uh, funnily enough ends up raising more questions. So Allison yeah, just before we get into this question, though, since you brought up the movie, honestly, rereading this, I was like, yeah, how would they have translated this to the movie? Because it's literally Lupin talking the entire chapter. Like, that's all that happens is Lupin tells a story. So either they would have to, like, do a major flashback mm-hmm. with a voiceover or like, like yeah. it just wouldn't have been visually appealing. So everyone just like calm down. Nope. This. Nope. Okay, okay. It's been 15 <laughs> years. Not over it. We'll never be oh over my it. God. Can I just, Allison, I'm going to take that snippet of what you said, and I'm just, like, going to just, like, use that for literally everything that comes up okay. with movie complaints. Because that that is, the, that is the summation of what I've been trying to teach all of you <laughs> these, yeah. all these years. We got it. We finally got it. Well, I did it. And I graduated the Michael Hartley School of Film Studies. School of Film <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, I think the thing really, because uh, we kind of noted this at the top of the discussion here, but the, the, the thing that I think we forget when we go back to read the book is that section from the movie is three chapters long in the book. Yeah. Like this it, And it's all people talking. That's what yes. I was going to say that all of the like the climax or the the events leading up to the climax in Prisoner of Azkaban it's just a chapter of one important conversation followed by a chapter of another important conversation and it's just yeah just it, it's they're very very talky the ends yeah. of harry potter books get really talky and so it yeah that is hard to film well and cuz the climax of this one isn't necessarily like a big battle you know like it's not like there's you know, i mean we started in sorcerer's stone where the climax was you know the the challenges and in chamber it was uh like the fight with the basilisk and i guess you could kind of say the climax in this one is the fight with the Dementors, but really it's this this reveal of all this information that changes the game in every way. I mean, it changes everything we thought we knew before, and it changes everything that's going to happen afterwards, pretty much, you know? And 
It's just a lot of talking. Well, right? I think the, the, the piece here <laughs> You're talking bit... as if, like, there are never, like, talky, long conversations in movies. Like, people talk, I mean, there, and it's interesting if you do it right. There, Yeah, and that's the thing, is this... I'm not necessarily even saying that this information could not have been conveyed in film, because it could oh, have Oh, it could have. But I, I can see to the point of, like... If you if you just do talking for a long time, and really when you look at the scene in Prisoner, like aside from the fact that it is missing that important reveal about the map, it is a pretty well done parsed down version of these three chapters. Otherwise, like it's it's conveying all the rest of the important information that can get you at least through the movie itself. Um, because you can leave Prisoner of Azkaban understanding it. You don't have all the nuances, but honestly, you could argue that that's a problem with literally every Harry Potter film. I um, do argue that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's true. Like, it's not untrue. But I, I think the difference here, too, is that we have what's, what's kind of funny with the way that the, the, this particular plot device works is that we have two climaxes because of the time turner. Um, so mm, that's right. You you're actually experiencing two endings um, because it feels like it could have ended at like Dumbledore pretty much shows up in the hospital wing and is like, it's not over. And then you get your second ending. So that that is a change in the format from Sorcerers and Chamber where the infra like you were saying, Allison, those important info dumps happen in tandem with the action. We get we get a speech mm-hmm. from Quirrell and Voldemort as he is fighting Harry. We get a speech from Tom Riddle as he is setting a giant snake on Harry. So here we are paused. But that's not accurate because they do the speech and then they set the giant snake on Harry. Like there in both of those instances there is a very solid chunk of like talky 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 because Harry even says like yeah, I want to keep the bad guy talking cuz like that keeps us all alive. So then they talk a lot and then battle. It's the same format they do here. True. I wouldn't even call that battle, though, in Sorcerer's Stone, because not really much happens. Harry just touches Squirrel's face. But there's, <laughs> but there's like a goal in mind within that, that moment. Like the goal in Sorcerer's Stone is that, like, while Harry is keeping Quirrell talking, the suspense is that he's trying to figure out what to do with the mirror and the Sorcerer's Stone to get it. In this situation, they're really just stuck in the house listening to these two talk. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's not necessarily a buildup to the buildup is the reveal is the rat scabbers is, is that, is, is it, is it Peter? Um, and then I, I, I see what you're field? saying. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a slightly different structure. I think these are like this and many other reasons are why prisoner kind of starts to separate from the first two as far as the mold of the of the first two books because i think people were noticing that you by chamber people were like this is the same story same story beats and prisoner tries to wander off from that a little bit but of course you know just like all the other books everything waits to happen till the end of the year I know. Isn't it so considerate that Voldemort always waits until Harry's done with exams? <laughs> always so. What nice. a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> Values education. Except mm-hmm. in the years when they don't actually need the exams, and then Dumbledore can just That's cancel true. them, and it doesn't have any impact at all. True. <laughs> yeah. But let's but let's talk about the Marauders map a little bit, since we were talking about that piece of history and and the missing piece from the movie. So let's let's talk about the map. And Allison, why don't you jump in with your question? <laughs> Yeah, um, this the map fascinates me. First of all, I just love the map. I'm literally sitting here wearing some shorts my mom made me, like that are based on Mina Lima's map. Mm. Um, so that was a funny coincidence. Um, 
But how is this magic working? Lupin says it never lies. It always knows who people are, even if in their disguise. So just how did four teenagers manage to make something like this? It just seems like there's so much in it. Yeah, it's impressive. We're all, we're all, yeah, we've all been impressed into silence. There's nothing to say. <laughs> there was this, there was this fantastic post that I saw somewhere on Facebook that it was like, when Lupin looks at the Marauder's map and he sees Peter's name come up, he's faced with two possibilities. One is that a magical item that he made as an early teenager might have a glitch or that one of his dear friends faked his own death years and years ago and is actually alive and has been hiding out as a rat all this time. And he thinks to himself, it couldn't possibly be A. This thing I made as a teenager is perfect and the magic is totally unflawed. It has to be that Peter was faking it the whole time. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's uh, I, you have to be pretty confident in your abilities. So that's another reason why I think Lupin... You know, he poured a lot into it. If he looked at it and he knew this thing he made when he was, what, 13, 14, was infallible. And he was like, yep, <laughs> doesn't lie. It can't. Can't be bamboozled. The only information we get from that Marauder's Map piece on Pottermore as far as the specific magic is, as Rowling writes, the magic used in the map's creation is advanced and impressive. It includes the homunculus charm enabling the possessor of the map to track the movements of every person in the castle and it was also enchanted to forever repel as it insulting as insultingly as possible the curiosity of their nemesis severus snape so we get a name for we actually get a name for the charm that they used um that at least tracks the individuals within the map um but i mean the the other thing and we've (laughs) we've uh, I, I actually don't think I, I, I don't know if I've had this conversation here on Alohomora, but I've definitely had it with my uh, teen library, uh, like Harry Potter Club, um, about like how the map works, because, of course, the, vi- the visual in the movie is beautiful, but not really practical and nope. not w- not what's described in the book, because according mm-hmm. to the book, it's just a par- piece of spare parchment paper. And it's not even like folded as elaborately as the Mina Lima version is. It, and I think at one point we were joking about how the map is like, is like a smartphone map and you can like zoom in and zoom out to the different floors of Hogwarts if you touch it. <laughs> but I was just going to say that it must be like a smartphone. <laughs> like, and the way Mary Grand Prix draws it in her version, it's just a ton of squiggles with like an overhead view of of Hogwarts, but that also doesn't really work. Um, yeah, this, this map definitely raises a lot of questions. And as Allison points out, how did, how did, uh, four fifth years figure out how to do this? Like, what am I like? Oh, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say one of my favorite things about, uh, the characters in the Harry Potter books is there's no false modesty. Like they all own (laughs) how awesome they are. And it's very (laughs) refreshing. Irvin, you also had a question kind of in relation to the magic of the map as far as... I did, yes. So this amazing magic, this homunculus (laughs) charm and all that, we make the map of Hogwarts and it's great and it's so useful for Harry. Why is this never replicated and never used for anything else in the series? Like... There seem to be a lot of really good applications for this magic throughout the Harry Potter books. You could make maps of 
the Ministry of Magic or, you know, all these other important locations. You can literally track where people are. It's, like, better than any GPS because, like, no one has to opt into it. Like, it really seems like a thing that should have come back. Um, especially I wonder if it's a privacy thing. Especially when Sirius was, like, hanging out in Grumold's place for a year with nothing to do. Like, come on, he could have applied himself. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it's a privacy thing. I mean, we know that... Um, Dumbledore mentions when they're going to see Slughorn, he's like, you never just apparate into someone's house or to, like, the front door. That's so rude. And I, it seems like wizards have this very interesting thing where they're like, magic can do things and you could really invade someone's privacy, but we're not going to do that, you know? Whereas there are these four teenage boys who just don't give a crap making this map about privacy and ethics and what other people think because they're teenagers and teenagers do stuff like that all the time. They don't think about the further ramifications, what they're doing necessarily. Um, so I wonder if it's something like that. Like if people know this is a thing that could happen, but they say, we're not going to do that. And then a thought just popped into my head about the trace though. I wonder <laughs> if that's the trace and the Hogwarts quill seem to have similar kinds of ideas to this. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot to be said, too, for proprietary magic. So, Because, for example, Dumbledore has the putter outer, which, however that works, doesn't it seem like that would have a lot of applications, too? Why not mass produce the thing? You know, make it get widely available, but Dumbledore just has the one. The Marauder's map is hanging out in Filch's office for years and years and years and years before the Weasley twins happen upon it. And they're not going to tell anybody about it because it aids them in their mischief. So I think it might just be one of those things that, like, yes, it's possible to duplicate it, but it was done in such a specific way that it just, it wasn't. And the people that did it weren't inclined to share that information. I mean, serious. Are you kidding me? Who's he going to help? Honestly, after th after the ministry wrongfully imprisoned him for over a decade, he's not going to stick himself out there and be like, by the way, here's something you could use that would make your lives better. He's like, no, forget that. I mean, and I so was thinking I more for like the Order of the Phoenix and Dumbledore and the war effort. Uh, I, I'm guessing that for in terms of the ministry, if Sirius were the only one in that equation between Sirius and Lupin, neither of them is going to have enough access to the ministry to be able to personally have like the intimate knowledge you would need to make that detailed of a map. But I mean, whatever that that's neither here nor there. I, I personally think it was, they did it once and they weren't, they weren't inclined to, sh to share the secret of how they did it. Well, we also know that as far as Lupin is concerned in relation to the order that he didn't want to tell Dumbledore about the map because he was mortified about, uh, right. What he, about betraying yeah. his trust. And I'm assuming that once Sirius rejoined the order, Lupin probably was like, can we not talk about the map ever? And Sirius was like, okay, I don't care. Well, but they, <laughs> they know about the map, don't they? Like, doesn't Dumbledore know about the map from Harry? Okay. Yeah. Also, yes. Filch confiscated it. So, so I feel like Dumbledore knows. Here's the thing. So Dumbledore definitely knows about the map, um, because I had to look this up for my book. And so he finds out about the map at the end of year four when when That's Crouch right. Jr. in his Veritaserum yeah. confession mentions the map, and Dumbledore's like, map? What map? And he's like, oh, Potter's map that shows Hogwarts. Uh, but that said, Dumbledore probably doesn't know that it's the Marauder's map, so he wouldn't know to go to Sirius and Lupin f about it. So you're right, if, um, if Sirius and Lupin were not forthcoming, then Dumbledore wouldn't know to go to them about it. So, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, and the, the example of the put-outer, I think... Uh, uh, was a was a great 
kind of uh, example, Genevieve, of one-off useful magic that people don't share. I think another, you know, other similar ones would be, and we've seen, you know, some multiple examples of this, but like, but like, are, are like Tom Riddle's diary. Right. That's, that's, you know, there are some things that people make and seem to combine magic in special ways that they are using purely for themselves and not with the intent to share. So that, that makes sense to me that this, this may not have been replicated in this. Maybe nobody thought to apply the homunculus charm in this particular way um, as a map. Yeah. Um, the Marauders were smarty pants. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wonder now I'm thinking too, as I'm diving into a thought process, um, I wonder if some of it was like accidental magic, you know, like mm, they couldn't mm-hmm. say this is what we did, you know, because it seems like there's the sense that magic can be intuitive a lot. And so maybe it's just like we pointed our wands and this thing happened and we just thought about it until it worked, you know, and they weren't really necessarily using like specific spells. They were just kind of playing like the way that young witches and wizards just like emote and magic comes out of them. Um, So I wonder if it was some of that almost too, where it had to be the four of them together that putting their brains together was able to make this thing. Well, and if you really explore the deeper theory of the magic that Rowling is kind of creating in the background of the series, and if you go even deeper into it and you, you know, look into the extra canonical material, you you know, you read Quidditch to the Ages and Fantastic Beasts, you you look at the Wonder Book games that she did, it is kind of what you're saying, Allison. There's there's more of an experimental nature behind magic. It's not so much that it's like the spell does the thing. Like we did a spell and we made a map. That's not what happened. There were clearly multiple levels of magic that were combined in different ways to make this map. Um, that like you said, maybe can't even be replicated again. Yeah. The way the- I think of it is, um, you know, the road doll book, George's marvelous medicine. Ah, uh, mm-hmm. yes. Well, first of all, Amazing. Uh, but in the book, George decides to make a potion to make his grandmother nicer. So he just combines like literally everything in the household, like aerosols and soaps and like poisons and uh, gives it to his grandmother and it makes her change size. And so his parents are like, oh, my God, this is amazing. We need to replicate this and, you know, we'll be rich. And he can't replicate it because he just has no idea what million uh, ingredients yeah. went into it in like, you know, what combination and what quantity. So I guess it's like this where they just sort of kept like he spells on it trying to refine it and then it worked but god knows how well i think that's another reason too why voldemort is such an unknown quantity and why he's so difficult to take down right is because so much of his magic was just sort of like feeling out into the ether being like well what would happen if i kept splitting my soul well what would happen if i imbued magic into these rocks so that you had to like put blood on it to open the door and i think magic does have a lot of unexplored frontiers where if you're just sort of reaching out and, like, I, we'll see. Like, maybe there's something to do with the intent of the desire with which you reach out into the magic and pull something out. And you can't write it down in a book. Be like, this was my process. So I think there's a lot to be said for intuitive magic, too. Right. Voldemort even says uh, one or more of my experiments had worked. So, yeah, yeah there, there's a lot to the experimental nature of magic there. Well, speaking of experimental complicated magic, let's... Let's talk a little bit more. We, we've touched on it a bit, but let's talk about Animagi because this is kind of the big chapter for that in the series. Um, and really kind of the extent of explanation we, 
we get on this. Um, it will be used again as a plot point in book four, but uh, this is really kind of the extensive information we get on it here. So uh, we had a few questions, Allison. Always. (laughs) (laughs) So the first thing is, and I I went looking for this. I didn't know if you guys have ever heard anything, but the only one of the seven animaga of the century that we know of is McGonagall. Do we know the rest of them? Have any of those been revealed? Because that drives me absolutely up a wall that we don't know who they are. I just want names. I don't even care at this point. (laughs) Well, there's there's reason to suspect possibly that Dumbledore could have been on the list since McGonagall is tutored under him, like to become an animagus. So there's a possibility that he he either at least knew the process really well or he himself was one and he just never let that bit of information slip. I feel like Hermione would have said something, though. Yeah. Yeah, I thought about that, too. Sure. Yeah, I'll agree with that. All right. Because she would have been like, don't do anything around any. I don't know. <laughs> What would Dumbledore be? I don't know. Any old, like, Westie dogs that are around? (laughs) He'd be a phoenix, but yes, old Westie dogs, too. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, like, beard. I was trying to think of the dogs that look like they have little beards sometimes. It's not Westies. It's something else. (laughs) Sorry, Irvin. I totally cut you off. No, no, no. I I was just agreeing with you that, like, yeah, like, that sentence Hermione says of, like, I looked up the seven anime guy and, you know, uh... McGonagall and Dumbledore are two of the seven. Like, I feel like that's how that sentence would have gone. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah, I I don't think we've got any further canon information on that. Joe! Yeah. <laughs> Come back from wherever you've disappeared to and tell us this. Yeah. <laughs> and surprisingly, that did not end up in the in the piece about Animagi yeah. in, yeah. uh, in the book, um, in the little mini book. And I can actually, I've got the mini book up here. Um, I have a legit copy and I, I can, okay. Okay. <laughs> B- believe me, I'm not necessarily happy. I bought these. I spent money on these. Silly <laughs> oh, things. I, I refused um, on principle. I had very strong feelings, <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, the Animagi piece, uh, from this heroism, hardship and dangerous hobbies, uh, mini book answered a few of these kind of tough questions that we had about NMJ and a, th- a few that we didn't have, including that um, while in their animal form, uh, NMJ retain most of their ability to think as a human, their own sense of identity and their memories. They will also retain normal human life expectancy, even if they take their animal form for long periods of time. I think that was in direct relation to Peter as far as that mm-hmm. Right, because that was heavily implied in Prisoner of Azkaban. However, feelings and emotions are simplified and they will have many animal desires feeding off whatever their animal body craves rather than demanding human food. And the process is super complicated um, to, to, to become an animagi. And uh, as Rowling writes, impatience with the long and complicated process is generally at the root of such of disasters, which usually take the form of horrible half human, half animal mutations. There is no known cure for such mistakes, and those who make them are often forced to live out their days in their pitiable condition, being unable to become fully animal or fully human. I feel like this is just Rowling's answer to, like, all the mythological monsters that, like, they're like, are there minotaurs in the wizarding world? Be like, the anime has gone bad. Yeah. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Well... That's terrifying. Isn't it, though? I can read you all these terrible steps, so you, too can decide not to become an anime jack because it sounds too hard. 
And so you too don't have to buy the ebook. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> that too. <laughs> so, step one. As we mentioned, for the space of one entire month, from full moon to full moon, a single leaf from a mandrake must be carried constantly in the mouth. The leaf must not be allowed, or the, the leaf must not be swallowed or taken out of the mouth at any point. If the leaf is removed from the mouth, the process must be started again. How do you control that when you're asleep? Like, what the heck? Like, I thought there was a think- semi-permanent sticking charm you could use. I was going to ask, can you put a sticking charm on it? Is that cheating? Uh. <laughs> how's, how's the magic going to know if you're cheating? <laughs> I feel like the magic would know. The magic would know. Well, also, could you put, like, an imperturbable charm on it? Because otherwise, as you eat during the month, like, that leaf is going to have, like, coffee yeah. on it, like, sauce. Oh, it's going to be real, real gross. <laughs> well, once you've done that... Remove the leaf at the full moon and place it steeped in your saliva in a small crystal vial that receives the pure rays of the moon. And if the night is cloudy, <laughs> this this really sucks. If the night is cloudy, you will yeah. have to find a new mandrake leaf and begin the whole process again. No. <laughs> <laughs> so yep. I would be so angry. I'd just be like, are you freaking right? I, I, I'd so be like, unfair. I'm clear this. I'm going to live as a muggle. I give up. Screw magic. No more. All of magic is the worst. Burn it to the ground. Just, we hate it. And uh, I'd be like, so what magic spell do I use to clear these freaking clouds? <laughs> and on top of putting, get out, spitting this into a file and hitting it with the pure rays of the moon uh to the moonstruck file a crystal file add one of your own hairs a silver teaspoon of dew collected from a place that neither sunlight nor human feet have touched for a full seven days what how do you know that and the chrysalis of a death's head hawk moth put this mixture in a quiet dark place and don't look at it or otherwise disturb it until the next electrical storm now, <laughs> now, step three. While waiting for the storm, the following procedure should be followed at sunrise and sundown. The tip of the wand should be placed over the heart and the following incantation spoken. Amato, animo, animato, animagus. Say it with me. Amato, Amato animo, animo, animato, animagus. Oh, you! Oh, wow, I, Irvin was the it's only on one the who passed. Page, by the way, Irvin I is the only one who passed. Anxiety. I am now a monkey. I'm sorry, I am off for the rest of the episode. I'm off to climb something. <laughs> he did it. <laughs> now, the wait for a storm may take weeks, months, or if you're unluckily in a place where there are no storms, even years. During this time. The crystal vial should remain completely undisturbed and untouched by sunlight. Contamination by sunlight gives rise to the worst mutations. Resist the temptation to look at your potion until lightning occurs. If you continue to repeat your incantation at sunrise and sunset, there will come a time when, with the touch of the wand tip to the chest, a second heartbeat may be sensed. Sometimes more powerful than the first, sometimes less so. Nothing should be changed. The incantation should be uttered without fail at the correct times, never omitting a single occasion. Step five, immediately upon the appearance of lightning in the sky, proceed directly to the place where your crystal file is hidden. If you have followed all the preceding steps correctly, you will discover a mouthful of blood red potion inside it. Step six, it is essential to move at once. To a large, secure place where your transformation cannot cause alarm or place you in physical danger. Place your wand tip against your heart. Speak the incantation, amato, animo, animato, animagus, and then drink the potion. Seven. If all has gone correctly, you will feel a fiery pain 
and an intense double heartbeat. Into your mind will come the shape of the creature into which you are shortly to transform. You must show no fear. It is too late now to escape the change you have willed. Step eight. The first transformation is usually uncomfortable and frightening. Clothing and items such as glasses or jewelry meld to the skin and become one with first scales or spikes. Do not resist and do not panic or the animal mind may gain the ascendancy. And you could do something foolish to just try to escape through a window or charge a wall. Nine. When, you trans- when your transformation is complete, you should find yourself physically comfortable. You are strongly advised to pick up your wand at once, which is rather unfortunate if you don't have opposable eyes <laughs> anymore. If you're a bug, you're just like, oh. <laughs> And you must hide it in a place of safekeeping where you will be able to find it when you regain a human form. Number ten. Oh. Yes, because it, when you are doing early transformations, you need your wand. You can't do it without a wand. No, 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 but right. it's interesting. For some reason, I thought I saw somewhere that it became, like, part of you, too. The wand does not, according yeah. to this. Number 10. Okay, okay. To return to a human form, visualize your human self as clearly as you can. This should be sufficient, but do not panic if the transformation does not occur immediately. With practice, you will be able to slip in and out of your animal form at will simply by visualizing the creature. Advanced animagi can transform without wands. Hey. Now, generally, wizards prefer to have their clothes transfigure with them to escape the embarrassment of reappearing naked. However, it is possible to leave clothes behind if one wishes to give the impression of having gone for a bath or something something similar. Um. (laughs) (laughs) When do I not want to give that impression? the first thing I think of. I'm going to go pretend like I took a bath. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm just picturing like someone following you, finding a pile of clothes and being like, ah, I guess they went for a bath. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and not to the head boy and head girl dormitory no definitely not <laughs> and as we mentioned before the animal into which one turns if an animagus seems always to be that which becomes the patronus there is no known instance of the animagus form changing to match the patronus if the latter changes but the animagus who can also produce a patronus is highly unusual and no study has ever been done on sufficient numbers to draw firm conclusions now that raises the question for me, the very unfortunate question of, so we we know that you can get a salmon Patronus. What if, (laughs) what if you become a salmon? And wasn't that mentioned? So, or did we talk about this at some point? I feel like I have had a conversation with someone before about the fact that it's like, you should be standing near some water in case you turn into something aquatic and need to jump into the water. Right? And it's just like, yeah, like what? I just had this amazing visual of like, so it says the first time you transform the image of the animal you're going to become is going to present itself clearly in your mind. What if the animal you saw coming into your mind was something horrendous, like a naked mole rat? And you were just like, no, 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 no. Hey, what do you have against naked mole rats? Did you not watch Kim Possible as a child? I mean, I watched Kim Possible, but that was not an accurate representation of what the mole rat has to bring to the table. Like, not even remotely. (laughs) You mean they don't rap? (laughs) See? You you didn't listen. It very clearly (sighs) said, too bad, 
you just got deal with what you got. No fear, no resistance, or That's else you're going to you're going to you're going to break a deal with what you get. That's what I mean. It's like, do you really want to enter into it knowing that a skunk could be on the other end of this? Or I that? think you. Hey, skunks can be really cool, though. Okay, I fine. Think- oh. My dad knew a guy growing up who had a skunk as a pet. They like removed the like sprayer, and they would use it as a deterrent for traveling salesmen. They would That's like brilliant. push it out the back door, and it lived in the house. And so, like a traveling salesman would come to the front door and. They'd push it out the back door and it lived in the house, would run around to the open front door and it would freak the guy out and then he'd leave. All right. Can we all admit then that being a tapeworm as your animagus form, like that's bad, right? Nobody's (laughs) nobody's seeing an upshot of this, right? No, no defenders. I mean, I'm, I don't know. It'd be like the Magic School Bus episode where they go in. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm trying. Maybe you just have to go into the into it with the assumption that you're gonna turn into a dung beetle, and then you won't be disappointed when you turn into like a dragon or something, right? right set, set the bar low. That'd okay. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't they address a similar thing in the Northern Lights, where they're like, "What if your like soul animal is a dolphin?" And they're like, well, then you're spending your life on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a that is a problem. Yes. I yeah. There, yeah, I, I I think there's just I mean, this answers a lot of questions that we had, which is nice as far as like the term in oh, yeah. terms of the plot, but yes, it does end up raising as with most things that Rowling does when she adds onto the canon, it does raise more mm-hmm. questions. Yeah. Um, do you guys remember ye olden days before Deathly Hallows when there was a theory that literally everyone in the series was an animagus? Was Just an like animagus. I, I read an article for literally every character in the books wow. was an animagus. Slughorn, Snape, what? Regulus, Dumbledore, Grindelwald, like everyone apparently was going to be an animagus. Like you got to the point where like I'd click on a mug on that editorial and I'm like, if this says that the character is an animagus <laughs> at the end, I'm quitting MuggleNet. I mean, I feel like the people were swinging the pendulum the wrong way because really they should have been looking at that polyjuice potion because that's the one that got the most <laughs> use go. in yeah. the series in the end, um, more so than Animagus. But uh, yeah, let's before we wrap this chapter, we just had a few uh, uh, a, a few more of those obligatory genius moments as they tie into Snape throughout this chapter. He only gets one little appearance here, but he's his presence is felt throughout. And Irvin, you had a point to yes. start with that. Yes. Oh my god. Just the writing here is so elegant. I love it. So first of all, uh, at one point in the chapter, um, quote, what's Snape got to do with it? He's here, serious, said Lupin heavily. And literally five paragraphs later, he really is here. Honestly, I'm surprised that like, Snape didn't take that moment to, like, reveal himself then. Like, Sirius is like, what's Snape got to do with it? And Snape is like, everything. Mm-hmm. He just shows up. Like, he's a drama queen. Oh, you know? he's, he's such a drama queen. He's even well, more of a drama queen in that he waited to make his dramatic entrance. Like, he he held out for the, the, the perfect moment. True. I'm but, kind of disappointed he didn't walk into the room singing, what's Snape got to do, got to do with it? <laughs> <laughs> what's Snape but a really big jerk face? Oh God, that would the have worst. been clearly what he would have said about himself, yes. <laughs> Snape's the worst. Um, now, but you, you had a few other things, too. Right? I did. So... Uh, this chapter is bookended by revealing the two people responsible for the downfall of the titular marauders. 
Because the last chapter <gasps> ends with, this is Peter Pettigrew, and this chapter ends with, here's Severus Snape. So cool. Boom. Blow your mind. I have never noticed that before. And it's interesting because that's the opposite of their role in the Potters, right? Where Snape went and said something to Voldemort, and so Voldemort started hunting them, and then Pettigrew gave him that last information. Yep, yeah. Oof. Oh, man. Pardon me while I scrape my brain off the wall where it's been blown. It's <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Well, and and also, uh, actually, Genevieve, uh, you noticed a little bit here as well. <laughs> so I'm I'm sure we all have these different moments in the books when we read them the first time <laughs> as kids where something was like huge staring us in the face and we just didn't notice because we weren't very literarily mature yet. But I don't know how I missed the first time that... There was like, there's a creaking board in a house that we've determined isn't haunted. And that clearly means somebody is hiding just out of sight. And like, that's a thing. But I was just like, I completely blew past that. So when Snape popped up, I was like, oh my gosh, where did he come from? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah she, uh, she telegraphed that pretty clearly. But uh, they just kind of, they just sort of breeze past it. It's yeah. nice. Well, that's like such a signature calling card of Joe Rowling that like she just buries all the like really important integral stuff like in the middle of a sentence while like really engrossing things are happening. And so everyone just like glosses right over it and they're like, oh, my God, obligatory genius moment. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, it's in, in her style. It's the mark of a of a great mystery writer. Um, mm-hmm. Because this this is what um, if you look back to, you know, some of the great. Uh, mystery, like authors who wrote specifically within the mystery genre and write with, and currently write within the mystery genre. This is, this is one of the best, most practice tricks is you just, you gotta hide the information almost in plain sight in a way. Can I, can I just say that like last night, so I, I missed this boat by years and years and years just no. by, <laughs> by like, I was boycotting this movie, but I watched Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls last night as a oh, on a lark that because okay, it no, exist. it's terrible. It is by all accounts one of the worst movies I've ever seen. But something that I thought was a nice takeaway was at the very end. When, <laughs> sorry, spoiler alert, guys, if you haven't seen it, when the UFO <laughs> takes off from the City of Gold or whatever, and. Indiana Jones says something to the effect of their treasure wasn't gold, it was knowledge. I really like, I know, it's a, it's a great line. It's really good. But here's, here's the tie in. Here it comes. It's good. Um, that jo- the more and more as the books go on, that yes, she writes these cool third act, you know, things with like challenges and big monsters. But I almost love the reveals of information more that what, is really what you're driving towards the end and where the suspense is taking you is getting the last piece of the puzzle. So you're like, oh, here's how we know he is, Peter. This is the information that we've been wanting. I could take it or leave it if there was a werewolf and a giant dog fight. You know, like, I don't care about that. I want to know how this information is all going to weave together. And that's where her genius is, is her treasure that she's providing the readers is the knowledge, not necessarily, like... How big and explosive and shiny can I make the third act climax, you know? Drop the mic. Yes. Snaps. No, I think in yeah. a way that's almost become in this new era of, of you know, Twitter communications with Rowling and the expectation that so much extra canonical material be provided. It was the thing we, I think, the fans loved most about Harry Potter and almost the thing that's kind of created the series' 
downfall in some ways when too much of that occurs because right. she she gave us so much and what she was doing was giving it in, in giving it to us in a way that makes the plot richer but then everybody was like but that also raises 20 other questions for me rolling answer all of yeah. them and she's like i i i can answer some of these <laughs> and then she does and then it makes more questions but it's but it is almost well, there's a reason it's her trademark there's a reason those things were not put in the book yes you know? like there's a reason <laughs> that some of these this information anyway sorry i have a whole deal where i blame us as a fandom for well and everything to be f- anyway sorry that's you're not the only one <laughs> but and to be fair you know a little bit i think does come like does rest on her because of her maybe jumping the gun a little bit and and because she needs too, a continuity but, editor that's all we need to fix everything is a continuity editor <laughs> well not even and not even that but i was even thinking in terms of when she was uh, and you know it was coming obviously off of the high of Potter ending and and of, and of course the questions people had and whatnot but you know so many people were like can you give us more and she was like I'll write an encyclopedia and that was I think the thing that kicked off the oh she has all of it somewhere in a box and right. mm-hmm. and I want it and I think that's and 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 you know it's funny to kind of examine that in relation to this chapter because I think this chapter especially and you you said this Genevieve with with the reveal of Peter but this chapter kicked off so much within the Harry Potter fandom when you start to examine the Marauders um this is mm-hmm. this is where the fandom really exploded um because and and I you know I speak personally for having been on audio fictions in the early you know in the in the in the in the mid to late 2000s it was like an explosion of marauders fan fiction because it was the thing that we could really you know after all of the theories about the main storyline you could really play so much with the marauders because there was so much room to play with it mm-hmm. um and 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 so I think that this chapter, in many ways, is actually the beginnings of of that um, that part of the fandom. So it's 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 a good and a little bit of the bad. <laughs> in, in some way, we found it. We found the root. It's this chapter, guys. <laughs> it's right here. <laughs> Hashtag. No Marauders prequel. <laughs> <laughs> Seconded. I actually wanted to ask you guys, going back to um, how she does mysteries and how she plants these clues and how she does all that so well, do you guys find that she does that quite as well in the Cormoran Strike books? I haven't read them. I can't yeah, speak same. to that either. I can't wait. I haven't, I haven't been able to get into okay, it. Oh, no, we have... We have a bunch of people who haven't read it yet. <laughs> oh, shame on you. Shame on all of you. Wrong dishonor panel. on you, dishonor on your cow, and dishonor on your whole family. <laughs> I own the first one and I helped break the story on MuggleNet when we found out that she was writing under a, a pseudonym. But I just like have not been able to get into My it. My roommates have both have both read them and they they love them. Um but I I can't really I haven't really uh, talked to them necessarily about about her writing style and those compared to Potter as far as how she builds a mystery. Yeah. Because I've read them, and I like the first and the fourth. The second and third I can kind of take or leave. But, like, a lot of it is elegant, but there isn't so much obligatory genius as there is in these books. Like, there aren't any, like, oh my god, in that sentence right there told us everything if we'd only paid attention. So, mm. yeah. Like, I still, I still highly recommend them, though. Especially Cuckoo's Calling. It, it's very, very good. Like, 
not to be a bit bitter about the whole thing, but back when she had to really try because she didn't have the Joe Rowling name, she wrote an amazing book. Mm. I imagine mm. when you have a lot less pressure, aside from the fact that, you know, you're, yeah. you're hungry and, you know, you want to make money on this thing. But I mean, she didn't have any any precedent that was set. So she had a lot more room to play and, and make these connections and make these leaps that were like that could have definitely blown up in her face, but they paid off in a big way that she's just under such an incredible microscope now. And people are looking for these stylistic tricks of hers, particularly yeah. that it's just a lot harder, I think. Well, and I think too, I mean, we know she spent a really long time planning a lot of Potter, you know? And so I think that comes into play a little bit is maybe shouldn't have every single detail and every single writing choice made until she was actually sitting down and doing stuff. But I think she had enough of the whole structure of how she wanted everything to go that some of these things happened and some of them were just awesome, lucky coincidences because this is a once in a lifetime series. You know, this is a once in a lifetime story and it just worked really well. Yeah. True that. I mean, I can only speak to, uh, if we're talking about Rowling's other writing, I can only speak to casual vacancy. Uh, that's not, let's, that's let's, not a let's mystery. Let's not speak not to it. Either. Let's just not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a mystery, so it doesn't really count. But I mean, like what you were saying, Genevieve, too, uh, I think that's exactly why she wrote it with the pseudonym, you know, to, to, oh, it definitely to escape is, yeah. that scrutiny and just be like, well, if you figure, you know, if they if they don't figure out it was me, they'll just be like, wow, this was really good. So, and, <laughs> which they and did. did. The reviews were outstanding for Cuckoo's Calling. Yeah, they did. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, and, and I think one review was even, there was literally one review that was like, I wouldn't be surprised if we find out that this is a really major author using a pseudonym. And lo and behold. <laughs> so. <laughs> so we should start combing all reviews for any <laughs> quotes like that and just see what we can ferret out. <laughs> Done and done. Well, good, guys. Well, look at that. That re-examination of the chapter actually led us to the root of all of of all the current problems. We figured it out. Well, bam. Yeah, we did it. Well done, guys. <laughs> we wanted more about the Marauders, and we got it more than we wanted. <laughs> yeah. And what we've learned is that society is to blame for all of it. Yep. Yes. Society killed the Society potters. killed Dang. the Potters. Dang it. Accurate. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... Well, that is our chapter discussion then. And so we need to thank Genevieve for being here with us and contributing a lot of really awesome stuff. So thanks for joining us. And thank you for everything that you and the rest of the social media team do, because you guys are amazing. Well, just amazing. Thank you so much for the chance to be on here. It's been, uh, I mean, I was kind of late to the Alohomora game, but seriously, in my, you know, I, I won't say it was one of my, like, capital D dreams. No, I will. It was one of my capital D <laughs> dreams to be on an episode. So thank oh, you so thank much you. for giving me the no. chance to come chat. It's been amazing. No, thank you for joining us. You are a wonderful guest. You put in some wonderful discussion points. And really, and we're going to tell you in a minute, listeners, how to follow us on social media. But really do, because our current social media team, which includes Genevieve, they are killing it with their posts. They are doing a beautiful yeah, job. Yeah, it's amazing. So. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. And so the next topic will be Neville Longbottom. So I hope you're all ready to talk about how he should have ended up with Luna all along. That's the hill I will die on. <laughs> Just saying. Irv it's gonna be great. Irvin definitely has a side to that conversation. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I try to be impartial, but 
<laughs> no, that's why I, I never, ever try to be impartial. Gave that up. <laughs> and listeners, if you want to join us for that episode of about Neville Longbottom or any of the upcoming episodes, which you can uh, find out more about on our website, you can visit our website, com. You can choose the Be On The Show page and follow the instructions to send us your audition. Uh, if if you're not interested necessarily on, in being on the show, you can also visit the Topic Submit page to tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about you can also submit with that topic uh if you would like to join us for that topic if it is of interest to you and you will see as well when you look at the beyond the show page you will see the upcoming topics that we have planned out so you can choose your favorite one you just need a microphone and a pair of headphones if you are chosen to guest host we will walk you through the rest once we hear your audition. We will uh, get with you to see if we can get you all set up for a recording. And if you just want to stay in contact with us in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at AlohamoraMN. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash OpenTheDumbledore. Our website is AlohamoraPodcast.com or alohamora.mugglenet.com. We've got it back. Uh, our YouTube is youtube.com slash alohamoramn. And our email is alohamorapodcast at gmail.com, which you should email because if you didn't know, the name on there is Dumbledore. So like, it's like you're getting mail from Dumbledore. That's amazing. Yeah, I was real, real excited when I began getting mail from you guys. It's excellent. And one more reminder to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash alohamora. Thanks again to Ali Friga for sponsoring this episode. Yay! Yay! And you can sponsor us for as low as $1 a month. And if you want to get fancy, you can check out our higher tiers for access to Dumbledore's office, episode sponsoring decals, chapter readings with Michael, and vintage Alohomora t-shirts. Seriously, take up on that because Patrick has put together a wonderful little thing and it is phenomenal and you don't want to miss it and i think we're gonna have a little conversation that's gonna end up on the patreon page too as well about anime guys so because y'all want to hear us talk even more right now right right (laughs) (laughs) you do definitely do you know you do well for those of you who don't (laughs) we will we will wrap this particular episode i'm michael i'm Irvin, and i'm allison thank you for listening to episode 274 of alohomora what was that? This place is haunted! Open the tumble door. <laughs> <laughs> I tried something and then I just... Oh my that goodness, was that was amazing. like a whole like, radio theater production. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was trying to do... Okay, no. Oh man, I need to step up my Dumbledore game. <laughs> So I was looking at this. Sorry, this this can get cut, but <laughs> the doc ends without grunge or grunge grunge. <laughs> I saw that and too. I, Snape is still holding his schoolboy. What? Oh, I was like, oh, there's another. I've read that fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, there's I'm really there's tired. there's a there's a perfect blooper for the end of the episode. Um. <laughs> Whoops.
Um, it's always great. You, you spoke it like a map, I think. You, your voice was very map. <laughs> I gave the map a voice. Yeah. Every character needs one. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, I told Leandra today, I was like, it's so weird because I'm still like, I called it sleeping small. Like, I still just like... Like I'm just like there's there I'm in this tiny bed. Oh wait, this is still this is actually. A tiny bed. <laughs> so. I mean, I have my friends crash with me in my twin bed. So you know, New York City. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the living's a little different there, right? A little bit, um, yeah. Like a queen bed is the size of my apartment. So not gonna get away. <laughs> I could I could never live in New York. I'm so sorry. I just couldn't do it, man. I just couldn't. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't live anywhere else. So you know what? This works out for both of us. <laughs> 